This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The branches of neuroscience that have the most direct bearing on whether humans have a soul are those concerned with understanding the brain and its relationship to cognition and emotion. In order to understand what the human soul is, the Thomistic tradition maintains that one must first talk about what the soul in general is, and then what's distinctive about the human soul, namely that it's the cause of the life activities of thinking abstractly and making free choices. Many of those who think that the findings of neuroscience challenge the notion that humans have souls do not make these considerations. For example, they often conflate soul with mind. Since what these people propose in many cases has more immediate bearing on the faculties of the human soul, the intellect, and the free will, then on the soul itself, I'll begin by looking at these faculties and then towards the end, I'll talk about the soul. In regard to the intellect, some claim that neuroscience shows that our thoughts have physical causes. And so they maintain that scientists are able to quote unquote, read people's minds by identifying the physical causes in question. As for free will, certain experiments done by neuroscientists appear to show that our choices are determined by our brains and that free will is an illusion. I will elaborate further on these claims, but I'm going to begin by explaining why the Thomistic tradition maintains that the intellect is immaterial, from which it would follow that neuroscience can say nothing about the intellect as such. Now, there's any number of different meanings of the word intelligent, an animal that can learn is in some sense intelligent, but the word intellect generally names a very specific form of intelligence, one that is different from the sensory knowledge that makes animals capable of learning. How exactly does intellectual knowledge differ from sense knowledge? Well, the intellect is capable of grasping universal truths, physical and chemical laws, various philosophical truths, and basic principles such as the whole is greater than the part, and equals added to equals give equals. In order to understand these truths, we must first form the individual concepts involved, for example, whole, part, equal. Now, a number of thinkers maintain that there's no difference between a concept or abstract thought and a sense perception. However, the senses only apprehend particular things. I see and smell this rose, not rose in general, and the imagination, too, is a sense power. I imagine this rose. I don't imagine rose in general. However, the intellect forms the universal concept rose that it knows to apply to every rose that is, was, and ever will be. So everyone right now, think of a dog, okay? When asked to think of a dog, you actually do two things. And it's obvious that these two things differ. For example, when asked to think of a dog, you're going to imagine a dog of a particular size. For example, you might imagine a, a big dog, like a German Shepherd. And yet, if I asked you, is a Chihuahua a dog? You'd say, yes, of course. Well, what does that show? Well, it shows that when you were initially asked to think of a dog, that the image of the dog was different from the concept dog, right? A German Shepherd is not a Chihuahua. But both a German Shepherd and a Chihuahua are both dogs, okay? And this is reflected, this difference between the universal and, and particular is reflected in the way we speak. We can't say that this dog is that dog, but we can say of every particular dog that it is a dog. 
So the concept dog abstracts from the features that make a particular dog the particular dog that it is. Now, a corollary of this is that concepts are not physical things. Okay, and this is a really important point. Concepts are not physical things. All physical things have a quantitative dimension. So go back to the example, think of a dog. The dog that you imagine has a size in your imagination. You could imagine a bigger or smaller dog next to the dog that you initially imagined. Now, in reality, a three feet high dog is taller than a one foot high dog. And in your imagination, a three foot high dog is taller than a one foot high dog. But the concept three feet is not a bigger concept than the concept one foot. It's a concept of a bigger length, but it itself has no size. If it had a size, it would be an image of sorts, and then it wouldn't be applicable to everything that has a dimension of three feet. If we form and consider ideas with our intellect, the intellect cannot be an ability belonging to a merely physical thing. Physical things can act on other physical things, either imparting new qualities to them, such as warmth, or causing them to be transformed into another substance, like when you have a spark that transforms hydrogen and oxygen into water. But physical th things can't act on another physical thing and turn it into a non-physical thing. There's always something material that persists through, throughout the change. And so the brain, nor any other body part, is capable of producing an idea because it's always going to act on something else and there's always going to be something physical left. A complementary argument for the immateriality of the intellect stems from considering the way in which less general concepts fall under a more general concept. So in the Platonic dialogue, the Parmenides, it's suggested that the more general concept is like a tent that covers a number of different things. So for example, the concept animal would cover the concepts of pig and dog and frog. The problem with this view is that only part of the tent covers each thing under the tent. Yet the whole concept animal applies to the concept of pig. The whole concept animal applies to the concept dog, and not just part of what's true of animal. Everything that's true of animal is true of pig. Everything that's true of animal is true of frog, and so forth. So the extension that the concept animal has can't be some type of physical extension in which case the intellect that forms the concept can't be a physical thing. Now, one thing that causes many people to dismiss the notion that thinking is a non-physical activity is that it seems if this was true, then thinking thoughts could not be affected to damage to the brain. And strictly speaking, it's true that brain damage cannot affect the intellect's ability to form concepts. However, as Aristotle points out, thinking depends on imagining. Just as cooking dinner depends on having obtained food to cook, but those are two different activities, so too thinking depends on imagining, and imagination is an activity carried on using the brain. Just as I can't cook if I have no food, the intellect cannot think without an appropriate image produced by the imagination. Why is that? Well. We can't form a, a concept of a tree or a cat without first sensing those things. 
If the thing that we sense last, left no lasting impression, we're not going to have a thought about that thing. If you ask someone, what did you see? And the person says, I don't know, I don't remember. The person's not going to have thoughts about that thing. So what we sense needs to be retained in our imagination if we're going to be able to form a thought to start with. And here, imagination is being taken in a very broad sense that includes memory. So if I remember my grandmother, I'm going to imagine what she looks like and so forth. All right. Now, even once that we form concepts, when thinking the thoughts that we form, we still need to do so in conjunction with imagining. Why? Well, the natures of particular things exist in particular things. Thus, we can't completely and truly understand those natures without reference to a particular, and particulars are what are apprehended by sense and imagination. Thus, when we want to under understand in a clear way what some abstract statement means, we spontaneously relate it back to something that's concrete and imaginable. So, for example, the statement, as a thing is, so it acts, comes into sharp focus when we imagine something which is concrete, such as a strong person can lift a heavy object, but a weak person cannot. So again, thinking thoughts is an immaterial activity, but it depends on imagination. And imagination is an activity carried on using the brain. And so if the brain is damaged, then there's a problem with thinking, because thinking depends on imagining. All right, now one might object that many times we don't picture anything particular when we think, right? When you've been listening to a little series of pictures and going through your head, probably not. What, when people think what they most commonly, what co most commonly goes through their imagination are words. Okay, people generally have a mental verbal stream and then sometimes people actually visualize written words. It remains the case, however, that if we're going to truly and completely understand something, we have to relate it back to more than words, right? We have to be able to relate those words back to something we can actually imagine. Nevertheless, it's still very important to be able to use words in our imagination. Um, it's possible to think without words. For example, sometimes we forget what the name of something is, right? We're thinking about something and it's, we're like, what do you call it? What is it, you know? And we can't think of what the word is. So you can think without words, but it's become second nature for us to hate, to, to think without words. It's very hard for us not to do so. So for example, if I'm thinking about motion, in my mind, immediately the words of Aristotle's definition pop up even before I really even understand, think about what I understand the words to mean, okay? So if the part of our brain that um, controls language or the parts of our brain that control language were damaged, it would be really hard to think because, again, we rely a lot on our imagination of words when, when we're thinking. All right. So this is the fun neuroscience part. There are all kinds of fascinating studies done by neuroscientists that involve reading people's minds. What's really happening, however, is that scientists are correlating what people are perceiving or imagining with their brain activity, and then using the, the correlation to interpret the brain activity into what, to, in, into what people are likely to be perceiving and imagining. For example, scientists have found a way to identify by looking at brain activity, which picture among a thousand pictures a person is looking at. The author of the study, Jack Gallup, presented data that went even further, actually reconstructing what volunteers were seeing from their visual cortex activity as they viewed a series of movie trailers. For instance, 
The program would spit out an outline of a white torso just when a man in a white shirt was shown the subject. And T. Horikawa et al. have even been able to tell some of the contents of people's dreams from brain scans, verified by waking them up, right? So what they first did was they, they had people dream and they were monitoring their brains. And there's certain things that people typically dream of, like a man, a woman, a car, an airplane. And so they'd wake the people up and then they, they'd then match the brain scan to that particular thing, okay? And they built up about 20 different things that they could identify. And then, then, then they would just look at the brain scan and they would say, oh, this person's looking at an airplane. And they'd wake, wake the person up. Sure enough, the person was dreaming of an airplane. All right. Another type of mind reading has to do with reading people's intentions. So in an experiment carried out by Kathinka Evers and Mariano Sigmund, subjects were given the choice between two tasks to perform, adding or subtracting two numbers. And they were asked to hold on to their intention during a variable period of delay during which functional MRI measurements were taken. Measurements of activity in the prefrontal cortex were found to predict with 71% accuracy which operation the subject intended to perform, adding or subtracting. However, it's not really surprising that this can be done. When we intend to do something, it's always something specific. We can't add or subtract in general, but we perform this or that act of adding. And our intention to add or subtract then necessarily involves an image. And forming an image involves brain activity, something that a functional MRI can detect. So those that belong to the Thomistic tradition look upon the aforesaid feats with admiration, but not with consternation. Scientists and philosophers involved with this type of research will talk about reading thoughts from brain activity and will make claims such as, and I quote, we've shown that with the right technology, these people's thoughts could be decoded and understood by any listener, end quote. Thomas recognized that the word thought is sometimes loosely used to mean image and the imagination rather than abstract thought is produced or considered by the intellect. Again, when we think of a dog, we actually perform two mental processes. We picture a dog, and then we bring to mind the concept dog. As noted earlier, people often do not distinguish between these two things. They, uh, they speak as if an abstract thought and an image were the same thing. To give another example, a YouTube lecture by the brilliant neuroscientist Raphael Yuste is entitled, Can You See a Thought? Neuronal ensemble, Ensembles as Emergent Units of Cortical Function. I think that all Yuste means by thought here is something that goes on in your head. Okay, He's not trying to say that it's an abstract thought, it's, but it's a concept. And the word mind also has more than one meaning. So mind can refer to the intellect, or it can refer to the imagination, or it can refer to both together. If you take mind to mean intellect, the brain is not the organ of the mind because the intellect doesn't have an organ. But by mind, if by mind you mean imagination, yes, imagination, the brain is the organ of the imagination, at least parts of it are. Okay. So there's plenty of evidence that higher, animal ha higher animals have minds while lacking intellect. It's not wrong to talk about an animal mind or speak of imagination as a mental function. Much of the supposed threat of neuroscience to the notion that the intellect is immaterial comes from the failure to understand the difference between the intellect and the imagination. 
Now, maybe at a certain point, neuroscientists will be able to decode even our mental verbal screen, our internal verbal monologue. Currently, quite a bit of work is being done on this, just to give one example. In 2021, Edward Chang, working with other scientists at the University of California of San Francisco, developed a way of translating the unspoken words of a paralyzed man into written speech. So far, they've developed a catalog of 50 words. The translation produces up to 18 words a minute with 93% accuracy. So this person cannot voice any, anything articulately. Okay, I think you can grunge a little bit, okay? So, but they, they take the brain waves of the, the person trying to speak, okay? Say that he wants his glasses, I want my glasses. So he's mentally trying to say that. And you can see on the computer printout, I want my glasses. It's really, it's mind blowing. Now how Chang did this was first he um, was working with healthy people, non-paralyzed people. And he focused on the brain signals that instruct the vocal tract to form words. So basically what he had done with people who, who could speak was he, he, um, he figured out how to create an artificial vocal tract. And, um, and so basically he, when they're speaking, he's monitoring their brain waves and he can take these brain waves and feed it into this virtual vocal tract. And so like if I was, if there was a barrier here, he could take my brain waves and there'd be me talking here too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. So, and I wonder if there's a difference between the words that we intend to vocalize and the words that we just want to keep to ourselves, like, wow, that's an ugly outfit, you know? So I don't know if there's a difference, but at any rate, I think at a certain point, even if there is a difference, they'll figure out a way of monitoring those silent thoughts, that, not thoughts, but images of words that we have. Um, okay. In any case, even if they do succeed in decoding our mental verbal stream, they're not decoding thoughts, okay? They're decoding images of words. And so, and then they infer what we're thinking from the words, right? But words are not thoughts. If words were thoughts, then we couldn't misunderstand each other. Um, I remember once um, a student came up to me, she was all excited and she thought she had understood something that I was teaching in class and she was explaining it to me and it made absolutely no sense, okay? So my words meant one thing to her and something quite different to me, okay? So words are not identical to thoughts. Words are meant to express thoughts, but they're not thoughts, all right? Um, and misunderstandings like this happen with a certain frequency. Um, by chance, when I was preparing this talk, I walked by the um, faculty book display and. One of my colleagues had written a book that was entitled, What Are We to Understand Garcia to Mean? You know? So there are words there, but what do they mean exactly? At the same time, however, if we didn't for the most part correctly understand what people are thinking, we couldn't have a Q&A session after this talk, right? In the past, people never needed to claim authority over what was going on in their minds, but advances in neurotechnology prompted initiatives to formulate laws that protect people's neural rights. Chile of late has been working on a neural rights law, and maybe it's, they've passed it by now. Again, words are not thoughts, but they are invented at least in part to reveal thoughts. I, I used to worry about the devil reading my mind, but now I'm worried that people can read my mind. 
Something to note, to which I'm going to return later when I consider the soul, is that scientists are not accessing the individual's conscious experience, but only the neural correlates thereof. They could not know that the neural activity corresponded to the imagining of a word unless the subject told them so. All right, so we've seen so far that the claim that neuroscience poses a challenge to the traditional ideas regarding the non-material component of the human mind is unfounded. Neuroscience can pick out the brain activity that correlates with sensing and imagining things, but not with thinking abstractly. Again, a common reason why people think that there's some kind of conflict between neuroscience and the notion that the intellect is immaterial is due to their failure to reflect upon the difference between imagining and thinking abstractly and the manner in which the former depends on the latter. All right, so now I'm gonna talk about free will. We all have direct experience of having free will. For example, I know that I didn't have to give this talk and you know you didn't have to come to it, right? Some claim in the name of neuroscience that the seeming knowledge that we have that we don't have to choose the things that we choose is illusory. Benjamin Libet's experiments in the 1980s are often cited as having shown that free will is an illusion. In these experiments, the participants were asked to flex their wrist whenever they felt like it, and then report the moment they became aware of their conscious intention to do so, which they noted by looking at a clock that had clock hands that go really, really fast, so they can mark milliseconds, okay? We would expect that first we have a conscious desire to flex our wrist, and then our brain, the motor part of our brain, gets ready to send a signal to our, the muscles of our wrist, and then we flex, right? So conscious intention, the brain revs up, and then there's the actual flex. Well, this is what happened. The participant's readiness potential, okay, the brain ready to send impulse, spiked about 550 milliseconds before the actual mo motion but the participants' reports of their intention to move preceded the motion by only 200 milliseconds. Conscious awareness of the desire to flex the wrist arose only after the brain got ready to sing, send signals to the muscles, right? So it wasn't conscious brain flex, no, it was the brain, and they're like, oh, I'm gonna flex my wrist, and then it flexes. So people in light of these experiments decided that free will doesn't play any role in our, in our decisions. It's really our brains that make up our mind. Now, philosopher Andrew Mealy rejects this interpretation of Libet's experiments on the grounds that the test involves an arbitrary action where nothing's at stake, and there's no reason to perform the action at one time rather than another. Mealy compares it to being in a grocery store and picking out one jar of peanut butter rather than the other like jars that are sitting right next to it. Whichever jar you pick, it doesn't matter as long as it's the right brand, right? Whereas in cases where we're clearly making a free choice, what college to go to, whether to marry this person, something's at stake and it does matter which individual we choose. Even in more everyday choices, such as do I leave the dishes or do I do the dishes or do I leave them for others or should I attend this lecture? Our decisions have consequences, consequences, whereas it's inconsequential whether you flex your wrist at this moment or, or that moment, okay? It's like putting on your socks. Does anyone here know which sock they put on first? I kind of doubt it, um, unless there's some special reason because of a foot injury. All right, so Libet's experiment involving flexing one's wrist really doesn't sh shed any light on free will. And there are other similar experiments that are subject to Mealy's critique. To name one, 
Scientists at UC Davis found that decisions could be predicted based on patterns of brain activity. But the decision was to look to the right or the left of a cue that appeared. The research in no wise justified one journalist's headline, quote, free will could be the result of background noise in the brain, studies suggest, end quote. You know, Father Anselm Ramelow, who's a Dominican, gives another argument against the view that Libet's experiments show that we don't have free will. He points out that the subjects made a free choice when they agreed to follow the directions given them. That's when they made the choice, when they decided, OK, I'm going to do what you're going to want me to do. They freely agreed at the start of the experiment to flex their wrist within 30 seconds once they felt the urge to do so. Now, an urge is not something one chooses to feel. An urge is something that just happens to you. It's possible to have an urge and then become conscious of it, like you wake up in the middle of the night and you realize you have to go to the bathroom. Added to this is the fact that once we decide to do something, the execution of the decision is often on autopilot. For example, if I agree with a colleague to meet her at lunch um, at the faculty club, once it's close to noon, I don't make a separate decision to head out to the faculty club unless there's some reason that makes me reconsider my decision. Something comes up, okay? But that choice is not like, do I choose again? Do I choose to step out my office? No, you just automatically, I just automatically go to my destination. So one way of looking at Libet's experiment is that from the start, one's made a choice to flex when one feels an urge, and this prior free decision is automatically and unconsciously applied to the specific instances when one feels the urge. Libet's experiment then does not bear on free choice, but on the execution of a previously made free choice. Even if we set aside Neely's and Ramelow's arguments, there'd still remain a way of interpreting Libet's experiment in a manner that's compatible with free will. Libet's experiments also show that people can choose to override the urge to flex. Their conscious decision to not flex after all in response to the urge precedes the flattening of the readiness potential that had been activated. So readiness potential, we're about to move our, and then squash, decide not to, and so on the basis of the ability to squash the readiness potential, some people decided, well, we don't have free will, we have free won't. Um, looked at this way, Libet's experiments don't reveal anything other than what ordinary experience tells us. We often spontaneously have inclinations to do certain things, but we can override them. For example, you walk by a coffee shop and the coffee smells really good and gives you a desire to have a coffee, but you can override that. And head on and on past the coffee shop. And sometimes for no reason known to ourselves, we feel like doing something and we might even start walking towards doing that thing. Have you ever done that? And you're like, why am I doing this, you know? And we're capable of overriding those tendencies. Our senses, including our internal senses, such as memory and imagination, provoke various emotions without our choosing to feel these emotions. But what we do in response to these emotions is a matter of choice. So even if we were not to entirely reject Libet's experiments as having no bearing on free will, as Mealy and Ramelow do, there's yet another way to understand them, one that does not rule out free will. An urge for something specific arises, and then we become aware of it, but it doesn't determine our choice because we can always resist it at that point. Aquinas, by the way, thinks that many people largely follow their feelings. Okay, they just go with the flow. 
we, we talk about sins of omission, right? You should have made a choice, but you just went with the flow. And, and in one particularly pessimistic passage, Aquinas doesn't reject Aristotle's statement, the bad is found in many and the good in few, but takes it to mean that many people pursue sensible goods as better known to them and forsake the good of reason, which is less known to them. So we do a lot of times just kind of go with the flow and not make the decision we ought to make. Be that as it may, our everyday experience of making free choices has not been eliminated by neuroscience, at least not by the experiments most commonly invoked as showing that free will is an illusion. If we do have free will, then what reason is there to think that it's an immaterial faculty? Well, if it was a faculty that used an organ, then its operation would be determined by physical causes. For example, I see brown because the light that is absorbed by that surface is not brown. The light that reflects back to my eye and pinches in my eye, that's brown. And I'm not free to see another color. I don't have a choice about that. It's physically determined, right? So some people think, though, that you can, you can save free will by turning to quantum mechanics, okay? So we know about quantum indeterminacy, right? So this can be illustrated by the notion of the half-life of a radioactive substance. So the half-life of a radioactive substance is the time it takes for half of the nuclei in, the, in that substance to decompose, okay? But we can't tell which individual nucleus is going to decompose during that period. We, we just know that it's, half of them are going to decompose, are going to um, corrupt during a fixed period. Okay, but even if we agree with the interpretation of quantum mechanics that holds that the indeterminacy is inherent in nature and is not simply a matter of our ignorance, so some people think that it's just we don't know, you know what's going to happen, and other people think it's just inherent to, to, to natural things to be indeterminate in that way, it's not going to provide an opening for free will, even if we say it's not just a question of our knowledge. Why? Well, it doesn't matter whether our decision is caused by determinate or indeterminate causes. If our decision is not co caused by us, then we're not free. So it doesn't matter whether it's determinate things going on in our brain that's making us make a decision or whether it's quirky quantum events in our brain that make us make a decision. Either way, we're not in control of our decision, and so we're not free. Okay, so quantum, quantum mechanics is oftentimes invoked because it is something indeterminate, but it's not going to render us free because we're still not in control of our choice. Now, people object to this conclusion saying it seems to make our freedom turn on the possession of an ability to defy natural laws, an ability that's hard to explain convincingly and even harder to show that we have. Well, this objection is based on a materialist assumption. It assumes that everything that happens in the world is the result of exclusively physical causes acting according to natural laws. But is my thinking this view is false, a product of physical causes acting right now in my brain? Is that why I think it's false? No, I think it's false because of the reasons I gave earlier that indicate that the intellect is immaterial. Indeed, the very fact that we can argue about free will shows that thought transcends the material world. Brains are not convinced by reasons. They're simply in one physical state or another due to physical causes acting on them. If there are reasons to reject materialism, the conclusion that follows from it that free will cannot transcend physical causality is unwarranted.
All right, so in, in the opening part of this talk, I chose to focus on how neuroscience is thought by some to overturn the notion that humans have the immaterial faculties of reason and free will. These faculties are faculties humans possess in virtue of their rational soul. So now I'm going to talk about the human soul and show that arguments drawn from neuroscience do not disprove its existence. But first, I must address more generally what the soul is. The initial philosophical notion of the soul arises from observing that there's a difference between living and non-living things. Living things move themselves, non-living things do not. Living things have to have something about them that explains this difference, why they can move on their own, unlike non-living things. And that's what the soul is. The soul is simply understood in the, in the first instance as the principle of the life activities. So according to this view, a live pine tree has a soul. So does a live cat. So the soul, again, is simply understood to be the cause of life activities. If things alive, there's got to be a cause. And we call this cause the soul. But what exactly is the soul? And this is pretty hard to understand. Well, in antiquity, certain thinkers maintained that the soul is a harmony. Okay, so this is a view that Aquinas and Aristotle are going to reject, but it's a very popular view. We even hear it nowadays. Okay, so they maintain that the soul is a harmony, or in other words, it's simply the complex interactive order of the living thing's parts. According to this view, the cat's soul is understood to be the respiratory system of the cat interacting with the cardiovascular system of the cat, interacting with the um, nervous system of the cat, and so forth. Okay? Death is explained solely by the breakdown of essential interactions among these systems. So there's no soul in the story. There's different interactions. If they're ordered in a certain way, the thing's alive. If they're not ordered a certain thing, the thing's not alive. Um, Aristotle and Aquinas reject this understanding. Aquinas explains why in his commentary on Aristotle's De Anima, and I quote, For the soul cannot, cannot be said to be a harmony according as harmony is found in composite things. For the order of the composite parts in the body is quite apparent. For it's easy to know the order of bones to bones and nerves to nerves and of the arm to the hand and of flesh to bones. But an account of the order of the parts of the soul is not apparent to us. For we're not able to know through the order of the bodily parts, the order that exists among the intellect and the senses and the emotions and things of the sort." End quote. Indeed, not only does studying the body alone tell us nothing about the relationship of sensation, imagination, the intellect, and so forth to each other, it doesn't give us knowledge of even one of these faculties. As physicist Erwin Schrodinger notes, and I quote, we may be sure that there's no nervous process whose objective description includes the characteristic yellow color or sweet taste, just as little as the objective description of electromagnetic magnetic wave includes either of these characteristics. So he's trying to say, if you cut up the optic nerve, you're not going to see yellow in it, right? So how do you know that the optic nerve has to do with seeing? All right, so the neuroscientist would not know he was tracing physical changes in vision if he didn't first have the experience of seeing. The experience of seeing cannot be reduced to a series of physical changes among interacting parts because to see is to be aware of color. And color here includes just on a gray scale, right? It doesn't have to be colors of the rainbow. So to see is to be aware of color 
None of the physical parts that make up the visual system have the property of being aware. Neuron, neurons lack awareness. The things that make the neurons up lack awareness. The atoms that make those things up lack awareness. Okay. So some will claim that if you have enough physical parts interacting in certain ways, awareness will just emerge. They will point to properties such as fluidity, which a single water molecule does not have, but many together have, or to surface tension, which again, a single water molecule does not have, but many together have. These properties, however, are partially contained in the individual molecules. You're not really getting something new. To give a comparison, one person cannot surround another person, but can be a group that does surround a person because each person can partially surround that person who's surrounded, right? Okay, so it's not something entirely new. It's found in the parts. Similarly, each water molecule has the ability to contribute to the formation of a field that accounts for why many together have the property of fluidity. Each water molecule also has part of the ability to produce surface tension because each of them is a dipole. In the case of collective properties, nothing of a different kind emerges. We see this in artifacts. No one part of an inkjet printer can print, but one part can move another part that moves the ink onto the paper. So it's the same for a bicycle. Obviously, a pedal is not going to transport you, but a pedal with other parts can. Why? It's because each part individually can bear weight and move which is what the whole bicycle together does. So it's not like you're getting a new property, okay? The case of awareness, the neurons aren't aware. You're getting something completely different that's not already contained partially in them. And you can see this by trying to explain sight to a blind person. So there'd be two approaches to try, trying to explain to, to a blind person what sight is. So one approach would be by explaining in, in all its de scientific detail the physiology of vision, okay? That would be approach one. Approach two would be to say to the blind person, sight is similar to hearing and smelling, okay? You're aware of sounds and you're aware of odors. So you realize that awareness can be of different kinds of things. Well, there's another sensible quality called color and awareness is what sight is. It's awareness of color. Now, of course, the blind person is not going to exactly understand what sight is, but still gets a better idea of what sight is than when, it, when it's explained in terms of the subjective experience of awareness than when it's explained in terms of physical interactions. And the same point can be made in regard to emotion. Certain physiological changes take place when we feel emotions, but these changes are not about something. But emotion is about something. You're sad about losing your favorite pen. Okay. If I asked you, why are you afraid? And you told me that your adrenal medulla had released epinephrine and was causing your heart to beat faster, I would not be satisfied. Brain activities and other physical activities simply are. They're not about something. No scientist could identify that a person was angry by monitoring physiological changes in the body if he or she did not first know from internal experience that anger is a desire to get even. The desire to get even can be correlated with, a physiologic, with the physiological changes, but it's not reducible to them. For Aristotle and Aquinas, the inability to fully explain sense perception and emotion 
in terms of the interaction of physical parts, is a reason to hold that the soul of the living thing is not the totality of the living thing's physical parts and their interactions. Okay, so Aristotle and Aquinas reject views that would reduce the soul to the harmony of the organism's parts. Well, what do they hold the soul is? Well, here we need to try to understand the difficult notion of substantial form. In what follows, I'll do my best to try to explain what substantial form is and what substantial change is, but don't be surprised if these notions don't immediately make sense to you. You have to think about them repeatedly and you have to compare them to the other alternatives, but you have to start somewhere, so I'll do my best. One of the things I want to bring out is that nothing that I've said so far commits me to Cartesian dualism. So Cartesian dualism is the idea we're made out of two separate substances, an immaterial substance and then a physical body. Okay. So what I'm going to briefly sketch is the Aristotelian Thomistic hylomorphic, literally matter form um, alternative, which is sometimes labeled dualism, but it's a really different kind of dualism than that of Descartes. Okay. So if I had in my hand a piece of blackboard chalk, I would have in my hand a cylinder and calcium carbonate, but I wouldn't have two things in my hand, right? <laughs> the, the calcium carbonate and the cylindrical shape make up one piece of chalk, okay? Form is not matter, but the two together make up one thing. Now, the notion of substantial form is arrived at by Aristotle through an analysis of different kinds of changes. When I get a tan or a pot belly, I remain a human being. These changes are referred to as accidental changes. An accident is something that exists in another as in a subject. So my skin color is an accident, same goes for my girth. However, when I die, I'm going to turn into a bunch of chemicals. That's a substantial change. Aristotle goes on to draw a parallel between accidental changes and substantial changes. He says, just as going from being flat stomach to being pot belly presupposes an underlying subject, so too a change from being one substance to being another must suppose something that underlies the change. And he calls this prime matter. Prime matter is the ability of a substance to become another substance. It accounts for continuity and change. When a squirrel dies, it's not as if a bunch of chemicals mysteriously come to exist in the place where the squirrel was before. Just as a subject that has undergone an accidental change acquires a new accidental form, if I acquire a tan, so too prime matter that undergoes a substantial change acquires a new substantial form. A substantial form makes a, a thing to be one individual possessing a certain nature. Non-living natural things have substantial forms that make them to be one substance rather than another, and they have prime matter, that is, the capacity to be changed into another substance. So oxygen, for example, seems to be a substance. It has the capacity to be transformed into another substance by means of a nuclear reaction, but in addition to this capacity for change, it has a substantial form that makes it oxygen and not nitrogen or something else. So a plant, a worm, a cat, like oxygen and nitrogen, each have a substantial form that makes them to be the particular substance that they are. And they have prime matter, which is the underlying capacity to be changed into another kind of substance. 
So why talk about living things having, ha having a particular kind of substantial form, namely the soul? Well, that goes back to what I'm saying earlier. It's because living things manifest activities that go beyond what non-living natural things can do. In other words, we don't think that the fact that if you drop a dog, it's going to fall downwards is a reason to posit that the dog has a soul, right? A rock will do that too. A reason to posit that the dog has a soul is because it sees and it smells. It has awareness, and awareness can't be reduced to the physical interaction of its parts. The dog's soul makes the dog to be a specific substance of a, uh, excuse me, to be a substance of a specific sort that's capable of carrying on activities that go beyond what non-living natural things are capable of. Now, I've heard someone who claims to work in the Thomistic tradition maintain that the soul is not positive to explain sensing, feeling, and so forth, but only to explain why the body decays. Well, there are two reasons to reject this view. First, all natural bodies, living or non-living, are subject to decay. We don't maintain that oxygen has a soul because it can be transformed into nitrogen. It can cease to exist. Secondly, action follows being. If a sighted animal is one living thing because of its soul, then its activities will depend upon its having a soul rather than on causes independent from the soul. To say that a cat is a cat because it has a cat soul, but does cat-like things due to a set of physical causes independent of the soul, dissociates action from being, what the cat is from what the cat does. The cat's eyes would not be cat's eyes without the soul, and they wouldn't be functional. In the case of humans, not only is the reason to say that cats have a soul applicable, for we too sense and have feelings, but there's a reason to say that our soul is of a different kind, because we can think abstractly and freely choose. In both cases, the souls are not something separate from the body, but are what make the body to be a substance of a particular kind, feline and human. Again, the relationship is similar to that of the calcium carbonate in the cylindrical form of the chalk, not being separate entities. The soul is the substantial form of that makes the matter to exist as a specific kind of thing. Okay, now one might still wonder, how does the soul relate to mind? Okay, so that's like a, a difficult question because a lot of times soul is conflated with mind. Well, the relationship, or first, again, mind can refer to our ability to think or it could also refer to our ability to imagine, okay? The relationship between both these abilities and the soul is somewhat similar to the relationship between the capabilities of a smartphone and the smartphone's physical structure. A smartphone's capabilities include things, include things such as sending text messages, um, doing web searches, playing music, okay? Those capabilities are not the same thing as the phone's physical structure, right? The phone's physical structure is rather the cause of those capabilities, right? In a similar way, the soul is the cause of the human being's various abilities, or ability to imagine, or ability to think, and so forth, okay? The soul, though, is a substantial form, so unlike the smartphone, whose abilities come from the juxtaposition of separate parts, it's not really one thing, okay? The substantial form, which is the soul, is the source of the capabilities that we have, such as thinking, imagining, and so forth. 
Just as the substantial form of a non-living natural thing, such as oxygen, is not the same as its properties, its electronegativity, its atomic mass, its combustibility, and so forth, but stands to them as their common and foundational source, so too the substantial form of living things, the soul, is not the same as the properties of living things, but is their root cause, in a sense, where they all come from and what their manifestations of. So again, with a, with a non-living natural thing, it has a substantial form. That substantial form is not identical, for example, with its electronegativity, but it's why that substance has that electronegativity. So again, the soul is not the ability to think or the ability to imagine, but it's what is the cause of the ability to think and to imagine. All right, well, so much for this very brief account of the Thomistic understanding of soul. I hope that this sketch makes it clear that nothing I've said in the earlier part of this talk about the immateriality of the intellect and free will need be construed as an endorsement of Cartesian dualism. The human soul in a living person is the substantial form of a living body and not something separate from it. It, however, unlike an animal soul, is capable of existing separate from the body. Okay, so that's a huge difference. It's an immaterial thing. Once the body dies, it still remains in existence. According to the Thomistic tradition, though, you're not all there. Okay, all of you is sitting in the chair right now. Okay, but when you die, at least your soul's immaterial, it will continue in existence, but that's only part of you. All right, so conclusion neuroscience based arguments against the soul do not face up to the the evidence that life activities such as sensation cannot be accounted for solely in terms of material parts and their interactions. Neuroscience-based arguments against specifically the human soul are generally directed at giving a materialist account of the life activities of thinking and freely choosing. As we've seen, arguments that are based on Libets and other similar experiments fail to eliminate free choice, in which case neuroscience has nothing to say about it as such because Free choice ultimately has to be something that's immaterial. Similarly, we've seen that the mind reading that neuroscientists are currently capable of and predictably will be even better capable of in the future does not involve observing abstract thoughts, but rather the neurocorrelates of images, including those for words. If the reflections on what we do when we think articulated above are correct, ideas are immaterial, and so we must conclude that the findings of neuroscience cannot have any bearing on our capacity for abstract thought as such. These conclusions by no means denigrate the tremendous power neuroscience has to identify the physiological underpinnings of human activities such as imagining, remembering, feeling emotions, and so forth, knowledge that has amazing potential for developing ways of communicating with minimally conscious persons, preventing memory loss, and treating various emotional conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder. Philosophy can't do these things. Philosophy, however, can, can help us reflect on our ordinary experience, which is what I've tried to do here. Thank you. So I'm, I'm glad to, to take questions if you have some questions. Yes, please. Okay. So, what is abundantly clear that neuroscience is yet to explore subjective consciousness? I, I definitely agree with that. But I guess 
Purana Prasantya is uh, the relationship between something that's material and immaterial. So if thoughts are immaterial and the soul is immaterial, how can something that's immaterial act on something that's Yeah, it's interesting. We always think somehow that what's immaterial is like weak, like it's a ghost or something. But think about it. If, if God exists, if you believe that God exists, he's a spirit, right? And he's the most powerful being there is. So it's the very nature of an immaterial thing to be very powerful. Now, as far as immaterial things go, our soul is like the weakest possible immaterial thing because it's united to a body. So I can only control my body. I can't move that piece of paper, right? But an angel can move anything. And an angel is a pure spirit. And a fortiori, God can move absolutely everything. So I think what the problem is, is that people are thinking, well, how can what's physical act on what's immaterial? And that's a real problem. It can't. But that the, that the immaterial couldn't act on the material, I think, is, again, due to our imagination, that we imagine the immaterial basically like a ghost that couldn't do something, or somehow immaterial things are weaker than physical things. Physical things are the real things, and immaterial things are less real. It's actually the opposite. Immaterial things are more real than material things are. That's why God's immaterial, right? I don't know if that helps, but <laughs> if you believe, if you think that God's a spirit, it should help, right? Other questions? Yes, please. Where do you think the soul is? Do you think it has a location? Well, I mean, my soul is definitely in my body. Why? Um, because it's moving my body and making my body alive and not that piece of paper alive. So the soul couldn't be like on the other side of the room and be controlling the body? Um, no, because I wouldn't be a living thing. You have to have a soul to be alive. Again, even like a dog or cat has to have a soul. Humans have a specific type of soul, but the thing to be a lot, if a thing doesn't have a soul, it's not, it's not a living thing. Because you need a soul for a number of reasons. Some of them I mentioned, but you need a soul to unify the parts and to make it one thing. Otherwise, we'd be like the smartphone. We'd be just like a collection of parts, right? Okay. And you can tell the difference between an animal and a smartphone because if you remove a part of the animal in a very short period of time, it corrupts, right? You remove a part of the smartphone, it remains exactly what it is. The smartphone is just a collection of parts, but a squirrel is one squirrel. And those parts depend on the whole for their existence as parts. Okay? And, in, and, and that needs an explanation. The soul is an explanation for why the squirrel is one thing, as opposed to, again, just a, a collection of parts. Does that make sense? A little bit? Okay. Yes, please. Forgive me if I'm just incorrect, but in your lecture you said that the human soul exists separately from the body according to Can you expand on that? Well, after you die, it exists separate from the body. Well, immaterial things, by their very nature, are incorruptible. A thing corrupts because it has it's, it's material. It has prime matter, the capacity to be other. An immaterial thing, by definition, doesn't have anything which allows it to be other. Except for, I mean, God, of course, can act on anything in any, in any way, but there's nothing inherent to an immaterial thing that can cause it to corrupt. God can annihilate a soul, just like God could annihilate an angel, but there's nothing inherent to the nature of an angel or a human soul 
that can cause it to corrupt. It can't corrupt. It can only go out of existence. Does that make sense? There's no pr principle of corruption in it. Yes, please. Do you think that neuroscientists that try to push there's no free will are using it to get rid of agency for doing bad things and uh, not following the actual law and things like that? I mean, or maybe they're just using it for their advantage. I, I honestly don't know. I, you know, the psychological studies of why people are doing things or is not really a, a philosophical topic. I mean, whether they have malicious intent or not, that's for God to judge. But so I really don't know. I've never even anecdotally seen what these people's views are, you know, but it's certainly true. I mean, it is certainly true that certain people seem to want to do away with free will. It's basically so anything goes, you know. You do what you have to do in function of inputs from the environment and your brain, and that's it. You know, so I'm, I'm sure there are people like that. I don't know about Libet, though. Please. Why, is it, why is it, isn't the soul, as you describe it, just a generalization that hovers over individual parts conceptually, but doesn't have to outlive those parts? Um, I don't really understand the question because a generalization is something our minds form. So I can make a generalization about shares, right? So, I mean, the relationship between generalization and whether the thing actually exists, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why that's a, a problem. Can you re, could you reword the question maybe? <laughs> I mean, I'm speaking in general terms. I'm not speaking about anyone's individual soul right but so i'm talking about the soul but usually when we talk we talk in abstractions but that doesn't mean that they're not real souls and real individuals barbara well the concept of a whole person could be a generalization it seems to me why that person is one thing is understood from a general point of view well, I, I think that each individual, each in, human individual here is one individual, and then we can say in general that humans are individuals as opposed to um, a football team, which is composed of individuals. So, go ahead, please. I was going to just ask you about, uh, because if plants have souls, souls are immaterial, but they don't continue to Exist. That's correct. So, um, and the same with dogs and cats. So, I thought, could you make a distinction? Because he was talking about how somehow um, the fact the fact that we have intellects makes makes it eternal. Yeah, I mean, if we, if we if we had no if if a living thing has no activity which transcends the body. If it has no activity that's not carried on using a body part, okay? So a dog and a cat, everything it's doing is digesting its food, it's running, chasing after squirrels, it's seeing and so forth. Once those body parts go, it's gone, right? But it's because we have these two activities of thinking and freely choosing that don't use an organ, we're not all gone once our organs are gone. <laughs> So the dog and the cat soul, they don't go anywhere, okay? They cease to exist as the matter is transformed, right? So if you have oxygen and you do a nuclear reaction and you turn it into, into um, nitrogen, 
the oxygen doesn't go anywhere. It simply ceases, the substantial form of oxygen ceases to exist in that matter, which is transformed now into nitrogen. So that's what happens when a squirrel, when it dies, the substantial form of the squirrel that makes it one squirrel, okay, ceases to exist in that matter when that matter is transformed into a bunch of chemicals. But in our case, the soul continues on because it's an immaterial thing. It's not something that's brought out from the potency of matter. That's why in the Catholic tradition, we say that human souls are created. They're made out of nothing. Whereas an animal soul, if you think about evolution and so forth, you get a new species. That, that soul is brought forth from the potency of the matter. It's a potential which is in the matter, but there's no potential in the matter for a human soul because it's immaterial. Yes, please. Well, you said earlier that thinking depends on imagination and you need the body for that. So if the soul survives, so what does the intellect do that? That is, that is an excellent question. Okay. So for Aristotle, it's basically like you're in cold storage. Okay. But for, for what Aquinas thinks is that we're given by God the kind of concepts that angels have. And these concepts are like way too strong for the human mind, but angelic concepts allow them to know particulars. Human beings, we only know particulars through our senses. We don't know particulars through our intellect. We know universals through our intellect, okay? So what Aquinas thinks happens is that angels who have these, these concepts that allow them to know individuals, even though they're way too strong for our minds, God gives them to us and it allows a certain knowledge of particulars. Okay. But it is, from an Aristotelian point of view, it really just seems you're in limbo, right? Thinking's depending on imagining. It seems to me, I've been thinking about this question. It seems to me that you would have some kind of like fuzzy thought, but without imagination, you lack like a connection with reality. And it's, your thought is just kind of vague. But I think you can think, but I don't think then that you can think that you're, or you can't judge that your thoughts are really connected to reality. That's what I think. But I think that's a really good question. So again, for Aristotle, I think that you're just kind of like in cold storage. But again, Aquinas is going to, is going to say that, okay, you're going to get these angelic type thoughts that are going to allow you then to know both universally and know certain particulars. So he, Aquinas thinks that like, certain people that are dear to you on earth that you can have knowledge of those through these kind of angelic concepts but at the same time he's like it's like putting too much fertilizer on a plant you know it's kind of burns our intellect to have these types of concepts but allows us some type of knowledge but that, that's why christians believe that we will get our bodies back yeah because we're not us yeah, absolutely. That's why Christians do believe in the resurrection of the body, because otherwise we're not whole individuals, and our our way of thinking is impeded by being separated separated from our body. But that's a really good question. <laughs> Any others? Yes, please. Um, there are many things that people lose personally through autism deprivation of the brain, like if they have a certain condition where they are committed to the brain, like they are Right. And this cannot be undone. So where do you think, like, do they lose this? Are you, that's not your argument, but with the logic that you're, that's being applied here, do you think that they're losing their soul from these years? Are they losing 
I, I think that they probably still have their soul. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to tell, um, but I would I would act on the the principle that they still have the soul. Because if you think about it, Aristotle says if the, if the person was blind could somehow get their sight back, um, it the the soul retains the the ability to see. It's the eyes that are damaged. So if the eyes were fixed, then the person would start seeing. Okay. So I think that that person, if their brain was repaired, then their soul would go back to, they wouldn't be able to remember the things that they knew before, right? It would be like an amnesia type situation, but they could start thinking again because they, they, they still have the capacity for abstract thought, but their brain just doesn't allow them. Go ahead, please. Sorry, including memory and well, right now, you're absolutely right. The brain can't come back from it. But in principle, if you could find a way of repairing it, I mean, do you think it's absolutely impossible that scientists will find a way? I was just reading about there There was a mouse that was, was brain dead and scientists brought it back and it started functioning again. So I agree that right now we don't have the, the technology in order to restore brain function in, in the case of these people. But maybe down the line we'll be able to, to to do so, you know. So I'm saying that I wouldn't like assume that the soul isn't there just because we're not able to repair the necessary instrument for imagining without which the person can't really be thinking. Yeah, that's a good question, though. Yes, please. Yes. Um, I'm really struggling with the uh, concept with the concept of soul system uh, after you're, after you've gone. Okay. Um, does it, what's the relationship between the soul and whether or not Christian? Is there any relationship? Well, no. I mean, everyone has a soul. And Aristotle, who wasn't Christian, he, he's the one who really is at the root of all these different types of distinctions. Yeah. One reason to the fact that the soul is immortal, but he didn't know what to do with it because he didn't know about the resurrection of the body. <laughs> yeah, that could be true. But um, but yeah, I mean, the soul is a, is a notion that came from ancient Greek philosophy. And again, Aquinas will say things like, in response to um, Pro Professor Chen's question, he'll talk about like angelic concepts and things like that because he's coming from Christian theology, right? Aristotle won't talk in those those kind of terms, but the whole notion of the soul and that the soul, certain souls are perishable, like animal souls, plant souls, and that other souls that have an activity that transcends the body, those souls are going to continue on once the body corrupts. But that's ancient Greek thought. Soul persists indefinitely. Yeah. You're stuck with your soul, sorry to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was joking that you're stuck with your soul for better or worse. <laughs> you can't get rid of it. Yes. What, what is the connection between the soul and the spirit? Okay, so spirit in the Christian tradition refers to the highest part of the soul. So it has to do with the intellectual soul. We're not talking plants or animals. And it's the part of the soul that allows us to, to be in contact with God, to pray, to have mystical experiences and things like that.
in the Bible it says God is a spirit being worshipped in the spirit and truth. Mm-hmm. And you're made in his image. Exactly. So we're spirit before we're a soul. No. Well, when we're when he says that we're made in his image, generally that's understood because we have intelligence. So in the beginning was the word, right? So the word was is the is God's thought, basically, the wisdom of God and so forth. So I don't think there's an opposition between saying that we're created in the image of God and that we're, that we're, we're spiritual in nature because it's due to having an intellect that you can have the highest part of the intellect that puts you in contact with God. Does that make sense? Sort of. Yeah. All right. Some more questions? So if the soul is immaterial and it's not connected to the physical manifestation of our body, is it attributable to specific people or is it just like a blanket course? Well, your, your, your soul is individuated when it's united to your body. Okay. Even if you just think of, of clay, okay, I take one piece of clay and I roll this into a ball and I take another piece of clay and I roll into the ball. The shape of each of these is individual to each ball, right? Okay. So your soul is individual to you. My soul is individual to me because it's united to my body and your soul is united to your body. So your soul never loses that identity. It always carries that relationship to your body. In fact, that's an argument that Aquinas gives against reincarnation. If your soul was put into someone else's body, it would be like putting um, violin music into a tuba. They wouldn't fit. (laughs) Your body fits your soul like hand and glove. They're perfectly matched to each other, okay? And it can't just be poured randomly. It's not like the soul is like the substance that you can just pour. No, it's very individuated to who you are. And so when your soul is separated from your body after death, you retain all your ideas. The ideas of things, the abstract concepts that you had during your life are going to remain in your intellect. And at the resurrection of the body, you're going to have ideas that maybe I won't have because I didn't study whatever you're studying right now. Okay. So yeah, I know there's nothing impersonal at all about the soul. It's very, very individualized to the body. You can't have like dogs have souls too, but a dog's soul is going to be really different than a human soul. But even the soul of this dog is going to be different than the soul of that dog. And it's going to suit that particular dog and be fitted to that particular dog. It's only their, their souls can't be separated, but they're still in, individuated, very much individual things. And, all, and think about it, too. I mean, if, again, from a Christian perspective, God will see your soul when you die, right? All your virtues, all your vices, all the acts of your will that are retained in your intellectual memory are there and visible to God. So, yeah, I know you're very much an individual even after death. Yes, please. So in the case of uh, possession or something in the Catholic yeah. tradition, the, the person, I guess, would retain their soul. It's like losing control of their body. Is, is that kind of how that's reconciled? I'm thinking specifically about the Gerasene demonic. Yeah. What happened there? But what, what, what happens there philosophically? I never really thought about it, but you definitely don't lose your soul. I think that, again, angels and and devils or fallen angels they can they can manipulate matter right and so they can make your arms move jerk around your head spin around that sort of thing they can do that um and they can also act on your brain and make you imagine different things exactly put images in your head but they can't put thoughts into your head they can only manipulate matter and 
So that's what's happening with those people. They're being moved, but their their soul is still united to their body. Otherwise, they'd be dead. You have another question in the back, please? Yeah, so I'm trying to think of situations where we can separate thoughts from, or abstract reasoning from the soul. And one such situation may arise under general anesthesia. So it's pretty well established under general anesthesia, there's really no concept of time, there's no thoughts going on. You go to sleep and then you wake up. So under those conditions, then it would seem to argue that thoughts are actually a process of the brain because the brain is asleep. Well, again, that just goes back to thinking depends on imagining. And imagining is a brain function. So you put the brain to sleep, you're not going to be imagining. And if you're not imagining, you're not going to be thinking. Again, that's like the key insight of Aristotle. Thinking depends on imagining. Just like, again, my cooking dinner depends on me having gone to the supermarket to get ingredients. If I don't have any ingredients, I can't cook. But those are two different activities. So thinking and imagining, they're two different activities. But if I can't imagine because my brain is under anesthesia, I'm not going to be able to think. So yeah, so that's really the key, the key you know, distinction that needs to be made to understand why brain damage affects our ability to think. And that is the superiority of the Thomistic account over Descartes. Because on Descartes' explanation, we're two separate substances, right? You have a thinking substance and you have an extended substance, part of which is your brain. Why would brain damage do anything whatsoever to thinking substance? They're two different, completely different substances with their own activities. But the beauty of the, the Aristotelian Thomistic account is seeing that there's a reason that our souls are in our body, our intellects are in our body. Our intellects are not disembodied things meant to, to be separated from the body, but they depend on an activity that the body performs, specifically imagining. So there's a reason for soul and body to be together. Otherwise, it's also like Plato. Plato thought that the body was a prison, okay? And that the soul was the real you. But Aristotle's like, no, 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 no. Thinking, which is what Plato thought was the most important thing about a person, and so did Aristotle, it depends on imagining. And imagining is a body function. Your body is fundamentally good for your existence as a human, as a rational being. Yes, please. I guess I don't really understand like your actual Okay, so the definition of the soul is it's the cause of life activities, and consciousness is one life activity. Right? <laughs> right now you're performing probably other life activities, like you're nodding your head, you're probably digesting food. Consciousness is one of many life activities. You have to be alive to be conscious. Does that make sort of sense? And that's the, the soul is, is a very stripped down notion again. It's simply the cause of life activities. Why we can think and nod our heads and speak and so forth, and a corpse can't. We good? All right. Well, thank you very much. Very nice audience.